Okay, uh, brothers and sisters in the faith, praises be to our loving Abba for again gathering each one of us to study his holy words. Now, tonight we're not going to study in particular the book of Leviticus because we're going to focus our attention tonight uh, concerning some of the viewer questions that have, we have received recently. And so we'll go through the questions and then next week we're going to continue with our Bible history project, the book of Leviticus. We're going to jump to chapter 23 because the rest of the other chapters are related material that we have covered in the past already. Because sometimes when we go through Leviticus 10, 11, 12, we also use other passages from the book of Leviticus. So we're going to jump to another topic next week concerning the festivals, the festivals of Yahuwah. And brethren, please share the opportunity that we have to understand the festivals of Yahuwah because not only does it speak of history, it also speaks of prophecy, and it's very relevant for our time today. We don't want you to miss the next episode concerning the festivals of Yahuwah. However, today, we're going to focus on our mailbox. So here's the first question. I had a question in regards to Cain and Abel. There's a part where Cain got a wife in the land of Nod. I understand that Adam and Eve were the first creations of God, and, uh, and the listed offspring were Abel, Cain, and Seth. But where did the people of Nod come from? That's a good question, right? How many here um, thought of that question when they were reading the book of Genesis? You never read the book of Genesis? <laughs> you read the book of Genesis, came across chapter 4, and you probably were wondering, well, where did the wife of Cain come from, right? Where did the people of Nod come from? So let's go ahead and jump to the book of Genesis, chapter 4, 16 to 17. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahuwah and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so this is what it says in Genesis 4, 16 to 17. And indeed, it does mention that Cain dwells in the land of Nod. And also in the land of Nod, Cain knew his wife. You know what that means, right? Because of this knowing of his wife, the result was the birth of a child by the name of Enoch. And the city was named after him. So there is this land of Nod. And the assumption is at this time, there were people in the land of Nod, distinct from the people who belonged to Adam, and Eve. And so the question is, where did they come from? However, for this to work, you have to assume that the land of Nod existed, or the land of Nod is composed of people like a city, right? You're thinking of a land of Nod, so there must be people there. However, that's not what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, Cain dwelt in the land of Nod, and the city was called what? Enoch right? That's what the city was called. However, the land of Nod was just a land. Well, why is it called the land of Nod? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the Hebrew of the word Nod, and this is what it says if you go to blueletterbible.org. How many here have taken the time to kind of look through the Blue Letter Bible? It's in the internet. It's available for everyone, free of charge, 
And this gives you tools to be able to see the Greek word, the Hebrew word behind the Bible that we read today in English. That way you can deeper your study of the Holy Bible. It's fantastic. Free of charge. Blueletterbible.org. If you go there and you punch in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, this is what it says for not. It's the Hebrew word node. Hebrew 5113. And what does that word mean? This is what it says in the next slide. And it's the meaning, the, the meaning of the word not at the bottom. What does it say? What does it say? wandering. And so the land of Nod is the land of wandering. Why is it called the land of wandering? I wonder why. It's actually a play on words. You see, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 12, this is what God said concerning Cain. Genesis 4, verse 12, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you, a fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And so God, as part of his curse against Cain, he says, you're going to be a fugitive and you are going to be a vagabond. What is a vagabond? Again, we go back to the blue letter Bible. This is what vagabond means. Look at that word, N-U-W-D, H-5-1-1-10, which means what? Next slide. It says at the bottom, to shake, to waver, to wander. And so the reason why it's called the land of Nod is because Cain dwelt there. Before Cain dwelt there, it was just regular land with no people. But when Cain moved there, it became the land of Nod, the land of the wanderer. Who is that wanderer? Cain, right? Remember, the book of Genesis was written by who? Moses. He wrote this after the events of Genesis. It's guided by the Holy Spirit. So when he was describing the land, it's called the land of the wanderer. The wanderer being the vagabond who is Cain. So there was no city. There was no land composed of different people, people separate from Adam and Eve. No, it was just land. It only became the land of Nod or the land of the wanderer after Cain dwelt there. Next slide. So the land of Nod was named after Cain. So the next question again is, where did the wife come from, right? I mean, it seems like the wife came from Nod, but that's not what it says. Let's read again, Genesis 4, 16, 17. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahuwah and dwelt in the land of Nod. It's called the land of Nod because eventually Cain would dwell there, right? The land of the wanderer on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built, he built a city and he called the name of the city after the name of the son Enoch. It doesn't say in the passage that Cain met his wife in the land of Nod. No, before he went to the land of Nod, he already had a wife. What happened in the land of Nod? That's when they had a son named Enoch. And so uh, Cain's wife did not come from this land of Nod, composed of people distinct and different from Cain and Abel. Well, where did the wife of Cain come from? It's one of his sisters. You might be saying, oh, 
Cain married his sister? Yes. Well, where did the sister come from? Where do you think? It came from Adam and Eve. When God created Adam, do you know what he said to Adam? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. People think that the only children Adam and Eve Eve had were, was that Abel, Cain, and Seth. They were the recorded names, but it doesn't mean they were the only children because God said to Adam and also to Eve, procreate, be fruitful, and multiply. This is why the Bible says in Genesis chapter 5, 4 down to 5, after Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and also had other sons, and what does it say? Daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. And so Adam, when he was born, how old was he? When Adam was born, how old was he? <laughs> That's a tough question, right? When he was born, could he already procreate? He was really technically less than a year old when he was born right? Technically, but can he procreate? Yes. And so he had many, many years to procreate, right? To produce other sons and daughters before Seth finally came. And so Cain's wife came from the other sons and daughters. Why do we believe that all the children during the days of Adam and Eve, they married each other. Well, they had no other choice, right? Why? In the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And so Eve is the mother of all the living. Well, how about Adam? Acts 17, verse 26, from one human being, he created all races of people and made them live throughout the whole earth. He himself fixed uh, beforehand the exact times and the limits of the places where they would live. So all human beings came from one couple, Adam and Eve. So in a way, we are related. All of our races came from one human being. This is why when it comes to races, no one race is better than the other because we all came from Adam and Eve. This is why it's true. All races are equal. However, if you were to read this book called Origin of Species, how many here read that book, Origin of Species? Because if you were to read all of Origin of Species towards the end, you know what Darwin concludes? That if you were not of the white race, you are still evolving. You are not fully evolved, that the white race is the supreme race. Bible says no. All races came from who? Adam and Eve. This is why the wife of Cain is the sister of Cain. Genesis 4 verse 17 proves this further. And Cain's wife, what does it say? One of Adam's offspring, which makes it his sister, became pregnant and bore Enoch. And Cain built the city and named it after his son, uh, Enoch. And so we know 
that Adam and Eve eventually gave birth to many sons and daughters, and they would populate the earth, including Cain and Cain's wife. Now, one might say, well, isn't that incest, right? That's against the will of God, isn't it? That's true. Let's turn to the book of Leviticus, chapter 12, 20, and the verses 12. If a man has intercourse with his daughter-in-law, they shall be put to death. They have committed incest and are responsible for their own death. As a matter of fact, if you read the Leviticus, chapter 20, now it's not for the weak of heart, okay? They're going to read some pretty odd stuff in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20. I know when they say something like that, don't mean, you know, when you read Leviticus 20, you're probably going to read it because it has a lot of odd stuff. And a lot of it has to do with incest. God prohibited incest, but this prohibition did not come until when? The days of Moses, when he gave the laws. Before that, there was no mentioning of incest. Abraham married his half-sister, right? And so there was intermarriage between the families back then because that was a different case. It's different during the days of Moses. Why? Because the population of the world, the, the, the people of the world has lived, had lived a long time already. And the reason why it was safe during the days of Adam and Eve to have your wife, have a wife who is also your sister, the reason why is because back then, the, the genome, the human genome was still pure, okay? It did not have what we call mutations. You know what a mutant is? When we think of mutants, we think, oh, superpowers, right? But mutations do not lead to superpowers. I hate to say that. Mutations lead to deformities. This is why we have genetic defects. During the early stages of humanity, during the days of the patriarch, the human genome did not have many uh, mutations. However, during the days of Exodus, during our days especially, mutations have increased exponentially. What does that mean? If you marry someone who is closely related to you, the chances of you getting two bad genes for a, for a, for a, for a particular defect increases. This is why God prohibiting incest is God's way of protecting us from ourselves. This is why incest was no longer allowed or it was defined and was condemned by God in the book of Leviticus, okay? All right, let's go to the next question. It's in Tagalog. All right, we're gonna ask, I'm gonna ask my daughter to help me Tagalogize, I mean, to English, Englishize the Tagalog. Is that okay, Sister, uh, Sister Jenna? Yeah, how about my son? No? Well, that leaves me with my wife. You're gonna have to help me out with this uh, translation. Pagkatapos ko po mapakinggan, Yung mga BHP at pagsamba ninyo para pong hindi na yata kayo umaayon sa sugo. Uh, ganun din po ang conclusion ng ibang grupo ng mga defenders. Kaya, meron pong iba na binabawalan kaming makinig sa inyo. Hindi po ba isa sa doktrina natin sa INC na dapat ay sumampalataya tayo sa sugo. Di po ba yan ang nakasulat sa John 6.29? Naniniwala pa ba kayo sa pagsusubo ng Diyos kay kapatid na Felix Y. Manala? Okay, what's the English translation of that? I'm going to do my best, okay? After listening to your BHP and also your worship services, 
um, it appears that you are no longer with or believing in the Latsugo, the messenger. Um, this is also the conclusion of other quote-unquote defenders. This is why we are being prohibited from listening to your preaching and teaching because we all received the doctrine, right, in the church when we were still in the INC, that one of our biblical doctrines is to have faith in the sugo according to the book of John chapter 6, verse 29. So the question is, do you still believe in God's commissioning of Brother Felix Y. Manalo? To answer that in a short way, yes. I believe that Brother Felix Y. Manalo was a commissioned messenger of God. However, I don't believe he is the messenger because when it comes to Brother Felix Y. Manalo nowadays, amongst those who belong to the INC, how do they, how do they refer to Brother Felix Y. Manalo? Angsugo, right? The messenger, and they use John chapter 6, verse 29. And this is what I want to uh, get you to focus your attention on. This is a worship service lesson. Um, forget the date, but it's about who we need to believe. Who are the foremost ones we should believe? John 14, 1 and 2, God and Christ. You see that? And the next question, which else should we believe in? The gospel, Mark 16, 5 down, 15 down to 16. And then in whom else should we believe? And then it says John 6, 29, right? We should believe in the one sent by God, the messenger, Ang Sugo, John 6, 29. And then the note, we should have faith in the truth that Brother Felix Y. Manalo is the one commissioned by God as his messenger in these last days. He was the one sent by God to preach the pure gospel through which we have become true believers. Do I believe Brother Felix Y. Manalo was commissioned by God? Yes. However, I don't believe that he is the messenger referred to in John chapter 6, verse 29. You see the difference, right? Because when it comes to what we believe about the sugo, we have to make sure it has to be biblical. It's like when we talk about Yahusha, the Christ. When we say, I don't believe he's God. What do people do? They get all upset. Oh, you're belittling Yahusha. You're belittling the Christ. You don't believe he's God to you. He's just a man in nature. No, we just want to believe what the Bible teaches about Yahusha the Christ, right? And so we limit what we believe, we base what we believe about Yahusha on the Bible. And so it's the same thing with the Sugo, right? When we say John 6, 29 refers to Brother Felix Y. Manalo, I have to disagree. Why? Let's take a look at John chapter 6, verse 29. This is what it says. Yahusha answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And so Yahusha is the one speaking, and he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Who is that him that Yahusha was referring to, whom God sent, that we must believe in? Let's read the context. Remember, if we want to know all about a passage, what do we need to do? We read before it, and we read after it. Let's read what is before John 6, 26, 20, 28, who is that him that Yahusha was talking about that we must believe in? 6, 20, uh, 6, 26 to 28, Yahusha answered them and said, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me 
You seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God, the Father, has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So who is that him that we must believe in in John 6, 29, according to Yahushua? Well, we, when we read the passages before it, who was Yahushua referring to who has that seal on him? The son of man. Who is that son of man? Yahushua. This is why after John 6, 28 to 29, when he was speaking about the Son of Man who has the seal of God the Father on him that must be believed by men, what was the question? What shall we do? They asked him, that we may work the works of God. That's when Yahushua answered in John 6, verse 29, Yahushua answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he Sent. The hymn referred to there is not Brother Felix Y. Manalo. Did you get that? It's not Brother Felix Y. Manalo. Who is that hymn that we need to believe in who was sent? Yahusha. Not the apostles, not the prophets, not Brother Felix Y. Manalo, not John the Baptist, but Yahusha Hamashiach. And so he's the one that we must believe in as the messenger of John chapter 6, verse 29. And so after giving that answer, what did the people listening to him say? 6, uh, 6, 30 to 33, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Yahushua said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Yahushua further establishes that he is the one about God's work is directed towards. Ever since the days of the creation of the world, the one work of God is to bring all creation to who? Yahusha, right? This is why when you read the Old Testament, it's all about who? Yahusha. This is why Yahusha says the work of God is for us to be brought to Yahusha. Why? Because he is the bread that God gives to give life everlasting. What's the proof? In John 6, 34, 35, Yahusha says, I am the bread of life. And so what must be the work of the apostles, the prophets, Brother Felix Wyamanalo? What must be their work in John 6, 44, 45? For no one can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. As it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. What is all the work of the prophets? All the work of the apostles, including Brother Felix Y. Manala, it is to bring people, to point people to who? Yahusha HaMashiach. Because he is the messenger mentioned in John chapter 6, verse 29. This is why when Brother Felix Y. Manala was still alive, you notice what he said? He did not preach himself, right? 
What did he always say? Do not listen to me, right? Listen to God, listen to Yahusha, listen to Yahuwah, listen to Yahusha, but don't listen to me. The apostles, the prophets, they all preached about Yahusha. They did not preach themselves. None of the apostles bragged about themselves, right? They all pointed to Yahusha. So what do I believe about the commissioning of Brother Felix Y. Manalo? In the book of John 13, verse 20, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. This passage we can use and apply it to the commissioning of Brother Felix Y. Manalo, but not John 6, 29. This is what we can use. Why? Because it keeps Yahusha in his proper place. It's not a way of kind of removing Yahusha from his place and placing yourself there. We don't want to ever do that, right? Because the one thing we need to understand is, next slide, Brother Felix Y. Manalo is one of the messengers of God. Isa sa mga isinugo, right? But Lord Yahusha is the messenger. Shayung ang sugo. This is why, if I were you, whenever we refer to ang sugo, it should be Yahusha. Not anyone else. But the Felix Manalo, the apostles, the prophets, mga sinugo. One of the other messengers. But the messenger. None, there's only one. That is Lord Yahusha HaMashiach. Okay? All right, let's go to the next question. Good morning, Paul Kajan. I know probably you are busy, but I just want to leave this as a question. Maybe you can give me a quick reply pertaining to these, verse, uh, these verses that was asked by a friend. Oh, it's asked by a friend. It doesn't have to be now, just when you have time. Thank you, Paul, and see you at the worship service today. <laughs> he is saying that this proves that there will be no need anymore for a religion or any ministers to teach us. Quote, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. And so the question is, I think the conclusion drawn, which this brother uses to form his question is, is it true that we no longer need religion today? Is it true that we no longer need ministers today because of this quote? You see the quote, right? What is the basis of that quote? It's actually the next slide. It's Hebrews 8, 7 down to 13. So he uses that as a basis. Not only that, also the next slide, he uses Acts 17, 24 as a basis. So according to this person, there's no need for religion today, no need for ministers today, because God will directly teach you through his, well, that according to the verses Hebrews uh, chapter 10, or Hebrews chapter 8, and Acts 17, 24. So let's go ahead and look at these passages of scripture. Let's begin with Hebrews, next slide, 8, 7 down to 13. For if there had been nothing wrong, with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, 
and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more by calling this covenant new. He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So that's Hebrews chapter 8, 7 down to 13. And so according to this passage, there's a new covenant and an old covenant. According to the new covenant, does it negate the need for a religion? No, because when you have a covenant, what does that mean? It's a basis for a religion. So there's a new way, new covenant of relating with God. No longer the old way, but a new way. And who ushered in this new way of religion? So remember, covenant means there's a religion. So we're not erasing religion, but it has a new basis now. It's based on a new agreement, a new covenant. Who introduced this new covenant? We read 8.7. Let's read 8.6. This is what it says. But now Yahusha, our high priest, the old covenant, who was the high priest? It was Aaron and his sons. They were the high priests, right? With this one, it's different. Who is it? Yahusha our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. And what is one of those promises according to the new covenant? In the book of Hebrews chapter 8 and the verse is 6. Um, we just read that, right? Yeah. Okay, so what is one of these new commandments or new promises that has been given. The Bible says that Yahuwah or God will write the laws in their mind and in their hearts, right? And so there's no need for you to be taught that because Yahuwah will write it in your mind and heart. So, and this will come after the, after the advent of the high priest or Yahusha. Why does the Bible say that? That no longer will anyone have to teach you. Because according to the old covenant, the old way of doing things, if you wanted to know the will of God, what did you have to do? Well, let's read the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of Yahuwah all Mighty. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to know the will of the Father, you had to consult with what? A priest. Not just a priest who also, Amos 3.7, surely the sovereign Yahuwah does, not, does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. This is why during the days of the kings, like David, Solomon, even the kings, if they wanted to know the will of the Father, they consulted the priest, they sought the consultation, uh, the, the uh, Council of prophets, prophets and priests. That's how the people knew the will of God, knowledge of the laws of God. However, when Yahusha comes, he will change that. In Hebrews 8.10, it says, I will put my laws in their mind 
and write them on their hearts. I will be there. Gone. This will come after Yahusha comes. And how will this take place? How is it possible that God himself will write his laws in their minds and in their hearts? How do you think that is? What do you think? How is that going to be done when God will directly write the laws in your heart and in your mind? What does that mean? John chapter 7, 37 to 39, on the last and greatest day of the feast. On a pause for a while, the Bible mentions a feast, right? A festival. We're going to talk about that next week. So I want you to invite your friends to listen to next week's uh, Bible History Project. Yahusha stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Yahusha had not yet been glorified. So according to Yahusha himself, time will come after he gets to heaven, right? That time will come when his spirit will be given to his disciples. What can the disciples do with the spirit? In John 14, 16 to 17, and I will ask the father, he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Remember what Hebrew says? In the new covenant, Yahuwah God will write his laws in your mind and in your heart. How is that possible? The spirit will live where? In you. So it's in reference to the spirit. Now, if the spirit lives in you, what can the spirit do for you? John 16, 13 and 14. When, however, the spirit comes, who reveals the truth about God, he will lead you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but he will speak of what he hears and he will tell you of things to come. He will give me glory because he will take what I say and tell it to you. So when you have the spirit in you and the spirit tells what is received from the father and the son, then that is how God and Yahusha will write the laws in our minds and in our hearts. But when will this be given? Acts 1, 4 to 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave uh, this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he, when Yahushua went to heaven, the Holy Spirit did not come right away, right? When did it come? Yahushua says, wait for it to come, the gift of the Spirit. It will come. When did it come? The book of Acts 2, 1 down to 4. When the day of Pentecost came. Day of Pentecost. Pentecost is another festival. There are seven annual festivals that Yahuwah has established. These are Yahuwah's feasts, Yahuwah's festivals. One is Pentecost. This is very interesting. Can't wait to share it with you next week, though. But for now, look at the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, what happened? The Holy Spirit was gifted to his disciples. Was it only for those disciples? In the book of Acts 2, 17, 17 and 21, in the last days, 
God says, I will pour my spirit on everyone. Your sons and daughters will speak what God has revealed. Your son, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour my spirit on my servants, on both men and women. They will speak what God has revealed. I will work miracles in the sky and give signs on the earth, blood, fire, and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will become as red as blood before the terrifying day, day of the Lord comes. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the spirit that was promised in the new covenant started on the day of Pentecost in the first century with his disciples. And it will continue until when? Until the end. This is why the spirit that has been revealed, what will that enable us to do? Ephesians 3, 16 down to 19, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see, when you have the spirit, what do you have? Who dwells in your heart? Yahusha. What are you able to do? Comprehend, right? What else? Know about the love of Christ. Where does knowing and comprehending operate? In your mind. So mind and heart. When the Bible says in Hebrews that God will write his laws on the minds and the hearts of his people, what does that mean? Through the Spirit, Christ will dwell in our hearts and give us the ability to understand the laws and the knowledge of our Almighty God. This is why Hebrews chapter 8 right? Because this is the, in the next slide, when he uses the quote, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. It doesn't negate the need for a religion. It is the basis of a religion or a way to get back to God, a new way ushered in by who? Yahusha HaMashiach through the power of the Holy Spirit. Does it mean we don't longer need ministers? Well, according to scriptures, what is the work of the Spirit inside the church? Corinthians 12, 4 to 5. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. So when the spirit was given, does it mean there's no need for a minister? There is still a need. Why? Because it's one of the gifts of the spirit. Varieties of ministries. What are some of these gifts through the spirit? Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, it was he who gave gifts to people. He appointed some to be apostles, others to be prophets, others to be evangelists, others to be pastors and teachers. He did this to prepare all God's people for the work of Christian service in order to build up the body of Christ. So there's still a need for ministers and ministry like evangelistic work teaching work, pastoral care to build up the body of Yahusha. And so the new covenant does not negate the need of a religion. It doesn't negate the need of a minister. It just does it in a new way through Yahusha leading through his spirit. Okay. 
Let's, uh, the other question he had, he also used Acts 17.24 to make the conclusion that you don't need a religion or a, you don't need uh, ministers anymore. Acts 17.24, the God, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if, need, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their, of their lands. God did so. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. So according to this passage, God is close to all people by virtue of creation, right? And somehow, some way, God drops hints about his existence to lead people to seek him out. That's true. However, does it mean we no longer need a minister? I don't think that's what it means. Why? Well, let's read the book of Romans 1, 19 and 20. How else does God bring people to him? God punishes them because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God himself made it plain. Ever since God created the world, his invisible qualities, both his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen. They are perceived in the things that God has made. So those people have no excuse at all. And so God says, there's really no excuse for people to not search for him. Why? Because his invisible qualities, his divine nature, his eternal power is found in nature, in the created universe. This is why when we study the universe, whether it is from the vantage point of looking at the cosmos, or maybe at the microscopic level, when we study the quantum, when we study biology and DNA, it should bring us to awe and amazement to the point that we say there must be God. And so God has dropped hints. God has placed a desire in our hearts for us to look for him. However, having said that, even though there is within us this innate idea, we know somehow, some way there must be a God. Romans 1, 19 and 20, let's keep reading 21 to 23. What happened? They know God, Bible says right? But they do not give him the honor that belongs to him, nor do they thank him. Instead, their thoughts have been complete nonsense, and their empty minds are filled with darkness. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptiles. So they believe in God. The problem is what they believe about God has led them to worship the creation instead of the creator. Why? Because what they believe about God, because they have an idea about God in their hearts, according to Acts chapter 17, verse 24, right? They have this inkling, this idea that they're being drawn to something bigger than themselves. However, if they don't have guidance, it's going to lead them in different directions and end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So where do we get guidance? In the book of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so they need to study the Bible. 
And if they're not willing to study the Bible and ask for the Spirit's guidance, they need uh, someone who knows the Bible to teach them what the Bible says. Okay? All right. Let's go to another question. This is a long question. I wonder who wrote this. BHP question. Thank you, brother, for enlightening us regarding Pagbubunga. When did we do that? Pagbubunga. In the institution where we came from, fruit or bunga means convert. That's true, right? When we say bunga, nagbunga ka na ba? Brent, nagbunga ka na ba? How about Jenna? Nagbunga ka na ba? How about you? Nagbunga ka na ba? I'm talking to my wife, by the way. Nagbunga ka na ba? No? Well, I can only pick on you three. <laughs> you know, that means you have a convert because if you don't have a convert, you're gonna go to hell. <laughs> you're not gonna be, I mean, I, I do remember back in the institution when they would like compel you to, you gotta get a convert. If you don't get a convert, you're not gonna receive everlasting life. And so everyone's like scared, right? I gotta get my bunga. And so what do they do? They go to Home Depot. <laughs> so they suddenly go to Home Depot. Come on, have free food. <laughs> Just listen, right? And you have all these different gimmicks. You, give, you take them to this nice fancy amphitheater and you give them goodie bags. I have a Target gift card for you if you want to be, if you're going to be a member, <laughs> right? You got to be a member because if you're, not a mem if you're not a member, you're not going to be saved. So let's, sorry for kind of getting sidetracked there. I remember brethren were so scared saying, maghuhukum na, wala pa akong bunga. We all know it's also part of our doctrine that if you don't bear fruit, you might not be saved. Good to know about the fruits of the Spirit. I just want to mention something about that. Um, especially since we are members of the body of Yahusha, and because we're members of the body of Yahusha, what is our responsibility? The book of John 15, 1 down to 3. I am the real vine, and my father is gardener. He breaks off every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and he prunes every branch that does, that does bear fruit, so that it will be clean and bear more fruit. You have been made clean already by the teaching I have given you. So the Bible says, because we belong to Yahusha, we are like branches, right? And he is the vine. What is the responsibility of branches connected to the vine? It is to bear fruit. What if you don't bear fruit? Bible says you are broken off. And what is broken off is cast into the fire. And so it is true. It is our responsibility, as a matter of fact, such our sole responsibility to bear fruit. However, does bearing fruit only mean getting a convert? Is getting a convert fruit? Yeah. But is that the only fruit? Because the Bible says if you don't bear fruit, or you, you might be broken off. Right? So how do you bear fruit? What does bearing fruit indicate? Which is why it's so important in the first place. Four to five. And this is the important point. Okay, I want you to look at this and remember this. Remain united to me. Who's the one speaking there? Not the executive minister. Okay, Yahusha. Remain united to me and I will remain united to you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It can do so only if it remains in the vine. 
In the same way, you cannot bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will bear much fruit for you can do nothing without me. How can we bear fruit? There's only one way for us to bear fruit, one way only. Without this, you cannot bear fruit. What is it? Yahusha says, and I in them will bear much fruit. If Yahusha is in us, we will bear fruit, right? This is why if we have no fruit, well, maybe Yahusha is not in us. Sometimes um, people ask, you know, Brother John, am I going to be saved? Am I going to be saved? I've done all these bad things in the past. Did you repent? Yeah, I repented. I stopped doing drugs. I repented, right? Okay, that's good. Will I be saved? Well, I don't know. Is Yahusha in you? Well, how, how do I know that? Fruit. Yahusha is invisible, right? He's in heaven. He's invisible now because he's in heaven. But if Yahusha's spirit is in us, how can we tell? Anyone can make the claim, oh, Yahusha's in me. But Yahusha says, the proof is in the fruit. You get it? This is why if you want to know proof that you're going to be saved, do you have fruit? Do you have fruit to show for it? What kind of fruit though? Let's read Matthew 7, 17 to 19. A healthy tree bears good fruit, but a poor tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a poor tree cannot bear good fruit. And any tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Anyone can claim, oh, I have faith in Yahusha. I believe in Yahusha. Yahusha lives in me. The Spirit lives in me. Where's the fruit? Right? Where's the proof? See, the proof is in the fruit. Without the fruit, you don't have that. This is why what we need to make sure of is that we will have bearing good fruit. And so what is that fruit that's good? Colossians 1, 9 to 10. For this reason, we have always prayed for you ever since we heard about you. We ask God to fill you with knowledge of his will, with all the wisdom and understanding that his spirit gives then you will be able to live as the Lord wants and will always do what pleases him. Your lives will produce, what does it say? All kinds of good deeds. And you will grow in your knowledge of God. So you have faith in Yahusha. You're in his body. You're baptized. Do you have good, good deeds? That's the fruit. That's the proof that Yahusha is in you. If you bring a convert, that's good. However, a convert's not the only good deed. What else can we do, which is fruit? Galatians 5, 22, 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, such things, there is no law. And so fruit, good deeds, what can that include? Showing love to someone, sharing your joy with someone. Creating peace with someone, being patient with someone, being kind to someone, doing good to someone, being faithful to someone, being gentle with someone, right? Exercising self-control. Are we able to do that? That's proof of the Spirit's work in your life, okay? So let's go back to the question. Now, Paul, can you enlighten us about duty or tungkulin? 
Now we're all expelled from the chapel. Good. I thought, was, I thought this person was going to say, now we're all expelled from the church. We're all expelled from the chapel. What is our tungkulin? What is tungkulin in, in English? Sister Jenna, what is tungkulin in English? Office. Good job. Now we used to sing the lyrics, Nasa tungkulin ko ang aking kaligtasan. Sister Jenna, translate that. Nasa tungkulin ko ang aking kaligtasan. Nasa, nasa tungkulin ko ang aking kaligtasan. What is that? In English, my salvation is in my? My duty. Okay. Does duty mean office in the church only? Wearing a toga or uniform to our grave. I feel that those who don't have office in the church or step down from their duties are looked down as second-rate members. And those who do become so proud makes me think maybe that's how Pharisees became Pharisees. Do Pharisees have a gown? I think so. I think so. They have those extra long tassels, right? Those Pharisees. That was their tongkulin. That's a good question, actually. Right? So there are people, okay, we're not, we're no longer in the chapel. We were still in the chapel. We had labels, right? You're the uh, book lord president of the United States of America, right? Kadiwa, CWS, scan. They have all these labels, these man-made labels, right? Uh, you have all, I think you can come up with all these different labels. But... When it comes to offices, how important are they and what is its purpose? And what does the Bible teach about our pursuit of such things? Corinthians 12, 4 down to 6, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts. Want to pause there? That's what an office is. That's what a duty is. It's a gift. Okay? Who gets this gift? Who gets a gift from the Spirit? All of us. Everyone has a gift, right? Are the only available gifts, the gifts with labels on them? President, assistant president, choir member, organist, choir director, leader, deacon, deaconess, head deacon, obispo, or what else is that? Yeah, mission book club. LOS. What else? What else do they have? So you have all these different labels, right? But what is really important are the gifts, not the labels. You can have a label but not have the gift, right? But you can have the gift even without the label. And what's most important is we use our gift even without the label. <laughs> because some people have the label, but they don't do their gift, <laughs> right? Point is, what we need to understand is our gift and we exercise that gift. So there are different gifts, different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit gives them. There are different ways of serving, but the same Lord is served. There are different abilities to perform service, but the same God gives ability to all for their particular service. So the gifts, these are ways of serving, and there are different ways to serve. What are some of these different ways to serve? In Corinthians 12, 7 to 11, Sometimes it is by speaking a message. Sometimes it is speaking a knowledge, speaking with full of knowledge. 
Sometimes it's faith. Sometimes it's working miracles, speaking God's message. You have different gifts. What else? In Romans 12, 6 to 8, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. How do you know if you have a gift? How do you know if you have a gift? You do it well, right? This is what Kasesar cannot be a choir member, right? That's not his gift. It's not his gift. Right? He has other gifts, but one of them is not singing. We just have to face the truth, right? But he has other gifts. So in his grace, God has given us a different gift for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So if you have a gift, do it well. Do it with your best ability. However, when God has blessed you with a gift and you do it well, right? Maybe your gift is leading. You let a group, you organize everything. Everything went well. Everyone showed up. It was a fruitful activity. Everyone felt so happy. Praises be to Yahuwah our God. Maybe your gift is creating music, right? You're able to just come up with nice lyrics and you're able to dance with the lyrics and all that, right? Everything's working well. What does God does not want us to do? What does he say? What does he warn us about? 12, 20 to 22. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact... Some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. What's the point of this passage? Apostle Paul is telling us we're all parts of the one true body, right? One and the same body. What does that mean? There's no part greater than the other part, right? And so if we have a function and our function is visible, and everybody sees it. Many of you benefit from our function. We should not look down on anyone else and tell them my function is better than your function. My office is better than your office, right? Because if you do that, what do you have? Have something called pride. And you know who became guilty of pride, pride in their office? The book of Matthew chapter 23, five to seven. Everything they do is for show. Who's the one speaking here? Yahusha. Who is he criticizing? The Pharisees, right? Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they were extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, right? And they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to respect, they love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. And so Yahusha is warning us that we should never think of our office as labels and titles. You get it? Right? Because there's some people who have that, you know, they have the, the office, they showcase the title. They want to wear it on their shirt somehow. I am the head something. I am the president of something. No, 
It should never be about boasting about what we do, about our position. Because when we do that, we think of ourselves greater than someone else. And if we're guilty of that, we're just like the Pharisees. You know what Yahushua said about the Pharisees? He said, each word, yeah, hypocrites. On the outside, they look so nice and proper, but on the inside, rotting, rotten to the core. Just like what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 to 5, they will hold to the outward form of religion, but reject its real power. Keep away from such people. For people like this, the office is only for show. The office is only outward forms of religion and outward forms of service. But deep inside, they're lacking something. They're lacking the true power of religion. Do you know what that is? You know, when it comes to offices, should we aspire for the greater gifts? What do you think? Should we? Yeah, we should. It says here in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, 31, are all apostles? How many here want to be an apostle? No, if you want to aspire for the greatest gifts. Brother John, I think I want to, I want to apply for an apostle. <laughs> I want to be a prophet, Brother John. <laughs> I want to be a teacher. Okay. Apostle Paul says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but, look at this conclusion, but eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I will show you the most excellent way. When Apostle Paul said eagerly desire the greater gifts, is he talking about the position? Is he telling us, apply for being an apostle? <laughs> apply for being district minister? Apply for being executive minister? Is that what Apostle Paul's teaching here? When he said, desire the greater gifts, do you know what that is? When he said, I'm going to show you now what that is, the most excellent way. Do you know what that is? We read 31. What verse do you think I'm going to read next? 32. But there is no 32 in Corinthians 12. So it becomes 13.1. Remember, the numbers here did not exist in the actual scroll, okay? There was no numbering. And so it's just one continuous flow. And so now I will show you the most excellent way. So the next verse is 1 to 3. If I speak the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. What's the most excellent way? Love. What's the greatest gift to aspire for? Love. What's the greatest gift of all? That's a song, isn't it? <laughs> it's love. Why is love something we need to aspire for? Because if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And take a look at this. Take a look at this verse 3. Right? If I, if I give all I possess to the poor, that's pretty tough to do, right? What if I told you you got to sell your house, your car, and give it to the poor? Would you do it? Well, you probably won't do it. Not only does he do it, he surrenders his body to the flames. Look at this. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
now it makes a lot of sense what Apostle Paul meant when he said, they hold on to the outward form of religion, but reject its real power. What's the real power? It's love. An office without love is useless. You get it? That's why don't aspire for the label. Aspire for the love so that the gift that you have can be put to use to build up the body of Yahusha. Right? It's love. This is why this is the greatest gift that we can aspire for, that we need to and must put into practice. Okay? So the last part of that. Last, is it true that... Uh, Last, is it true what the other group is teaching that right now in our time, God has a direct commandment to all of us in Isaiah 117. They say that that is our tungkulin now. Thanks for your time. I guess there is a group, there is a religious group who's using Isaiah 1 verse 17 and teaching its members that this is the direct commandment of God, Isaiah 117. Well, is that true? Let's read the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 17. This is what it says, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. That's Isaiah 1, 17. Are these good things to do? What do you say? Yeah. Question is, is this God's direct command to us direct command to us well to find out we need to know well who was god speaking to because when you say direct command well who was god speaking to who was he refer referring to right well to answer that let's go back to isaiah 8 to 10 so the daughter of zion is left as a booth in the vineyard as a hut in the garden of cucumbers as a besieged city unless yahuwah of hosts had left to us a very small remnant we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of Yahuwah. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So who's God's audience when he said Isaiah 117? The rulers of the daughter of Zion. Why does God want their attention? Why is God telling them, listen to my word? Because they left the daughter of Zion astray to the point that they have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of this, God had to set apart a very small remnant. But God is speaking to the rulers of Sodom, the rulers of this daughter of Zion that left God. And he says to them, I have a message for you. What is that message? 15 and 16. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. And so what is God's message? Or who was he speaking to? The rulers of Sodom, right? The rulers of that institution that has gone astray. And so what is his message? Your worship is not being accepted. Your prayers are not being accepted. But I'm giving you a chance. What does God say to them? Stop doing wrong. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. What else does God want him to do? Isaiah 117. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And so in Isaiah 117, who was he speaking to? The rulers. Right? 
the rulers. Hence, Isaiah 117, next slide, is not a direct command of God to us, right? But a direct command of God to the rulers of the daughter of Zion who led the people astray. And what else did God say to them? What opportunity does God give to them? Isaiah 1, we keep reading, 18 to 20, come now. Let us reason together, says Yahuwah, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist in the bell, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of Yahuwah has spoken. So what opportunity has God given to the rulers? Repent, right? Reason together. If you will repent and do what is right, God will forgive you. They should have done that. Well, what did they do according to the prophecy? Isaiah 1, 21, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case has not come before them. So they ignored God's counsel. They did what they wanted to do and continued their work. And so do you think God accepted them? Did God forgive them and turn their sins into white as snow? No, that's not what happened, right? And so what happened to the city? It became a harlot. And so God, God's message when he was speaking in Isaiah 117 is not for the remnant. Get it? It's for who? The rulers. Having said that, is it wrong to help the oppressed? Is it wrong to help the widows and orphans? No, James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's good to help widows. It's good to help orphans, to help the helpless. However, it's not the direct command of God to all of us. But if there is such a thing as a direct command to all of us, it would be now through Yahusha, right? Because we belong to Yahusha. Unless you don't believe in Yahusha or you don't believe in Christ. Because now, in these last days, in the latter parts of these last days, if there's a direct command, it's going to come from Yahusha. Is there a direct command to all of us? I think so, right? What is that? In the book of Matthew 28, 19 to 20, go then to all peoples everywhere and make them my disciples baptize them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and teach them to obey everything i have commanded you and i will be with you always to the end of the age in a nutshell if you want to know what our function is our work together is as yahushans it's right there right it has everything there doesn't it what does it have teach them to obey everything i commanded to do that, we have to go back. Genesis, especially the first five books of um, Moses. Do you know why? Because Yahushua said, I did not come here to abolish the law. When he said that, he was referring to the laws of Moses, but to fulfill the law. Anyone who says, anyone who says, Yahushua said, who says that the, the laws, the book of Moses is no longer needed, it's no longer important, is going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Remember that? This is why we want to restore the commandments of God that he introduced to Moses. You know, these are the things Yahushua told us to do. This is why we're going back to the Old Testament. We're studying the five books of Moses. 
And we're going to go to the book of Revelation because Yahusha is the main subject of Revelation. We want to know what Yahusha wants us to do, right? That's what we're doing now, isn't it? What else? Yahusha says, make disciples of people, evangelism. This is why we have the Bible History Project. This is why we invite people. What else must we do? We need to baptize. This is why baptism must go on until the end, Yahusha says. And when we baptize, what name do we use? What does it say? The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. This is why for us to be able to do that properly, we need to also proclaim what? The name. This is why if there's a direct command from Yahusha in a nutshell that we have to do, it's right there. It's right there. This is for his disciples, beginning with the 11, starting with the 11. And then when you add more disciples, guess what? These added disciples, this is a direct command that they have to follow. Start with 11, then maybe 22, maybe 44. It just keeps multiplying. Every disciple has this direct command from Yahusha. What are they? Make disciples, baptize, use the name of Yahuwah, Yahusha, and the Ruach Kadash, and to teach the commandments of our God, right? That's more of the direct command of Yahuwah and Yahusha for each and every one of us, okay? All right, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for attending our Bible study. Remember, um, inform your friends to join us next uh, Friday. Next Friday, we will not have question and answer. We're just going to focus on the festivals. It's going to be an eye-opener, brethren. <laughs> Something shocking uh, in next week's uh, episode. That's all. Let's all stand, and we shall pray together. Everlasting Abba. Loving Yahuwah, our God, thank you so much for all of your blessings, for giving us your holy words, for giving us answers to questions we might ask. Thank you for strengthening our faith this day. Teach us to trust you, to place our hope, our confidence in your mighty hands. Yahuwah, may you please bless your people all over the world. May you please speak to us through your spirit. Inform us about your will and give us the boldness to carry them out. Amen. We proclaim your name and we will do so until the very end. Amen. Yahusha HaMashiach, we worship you and we are your followers. Help us to do everything you want us to do because we remember your promise. You will be with us until the very end of the age. Father, please bless your people who need your strength and help. As we face a pandemic together and other trials and tribulations have come in our life, help us please to prevail by means of your mighty power. We ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.